Welcome to Jabberwocky Audio Theater. This podcast is made possible by Tim Munson, a listener like you who's backing us on Patreon. Thank you. Visit our website at jabberaudio.com support to learn more or go to patreon.com slash team jabberwocky. The following audio theater is rated ADG for general audiences. Jabberwocky Audio Theater presents Through the Looking Glass. Today's presentation, Prince Prigio, Part 6 of 6. Welcome back, dear listeners. Here we are at the last part of Prince Prigio. Now, I am given to understand that the previous episodes are available online, so if you have missed them, I would urge you to go back and give them a listen, as I am sure there are details I would otherwise neglect. Now, for those of you who have been listening, but whose memory might be getting a bit hazy, here's a bit of a summary. Prince Prigio is the firstborn of the king and queen of the real foe country of Pantuflia, who, owing to a snub by the queen to the fairies, was gifted to be too clever by half. Too clever by one and five-eighths, to be precise. Yes, quite. So the court gets annoyed with him and far prefer his two younger brothers, Enrico and Alfonso. In fact, the king tries to get his son Prigio to slay a fearsome and dangerous fire drake. Alas, and not in the tradition of fairy tales, Prigio's two younger brothers are slain, all while Prigio is far too clever to believe in fire drakes. The king and the court abandon Prigio, leading him at last to a disused garret in the palace where he finds magical gifts given to him at his christening. Within a chapter or two, uh, for that is how these stories go, the prince falls in love, realizes the folly of his cleverness, and vows to slay the fire drake. Now, remaining quite clever indeed, Prigio devises a plan for the fire drake to fight an equally fearsome creature known as the Remora, which is as cold as the fire drake is hot. They slay each other, and it appears as if the young prince has redeemed himself. However, while dining at the home of his lady love, Prigio learns that his father, the king, has proclaimed the prince guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors, and further that whomsoever slays the fire drake shall become crown prince and marry the lady Melinda, previously engaged to the late prince Alfonso. Well, after a few complications as befit a fairy tale of this length, Prince Prigio, still quite clever, manages to win both the reward for bringing Prince Prigio to court and for slaying the fire drake, and so King Grognio wrote his son a royal check for both rewards for... A king's word is his bond. However, there was one matter upon which the king was also quite resolute. Where were you off to? Don't you remember that this is your wedding day? My proclamation offered not only the money, which you have, but the hand of the Lady Molinda, which the court chaplain will presently make your own. I congratulate you, sir. Molinda is a dear girl. I was about to say, sir, that I cannot possibly have the pleasure of wedding my cousin. The family gallows, I presume, is in good working order? Ask the king of the family executioner, a tall gaunt man in black and scarlet, who was only employed in the case of members of the blood royal needing shuffling of mortal coil. Never better, sire, said the man, bowing with more courtliness than his profession indicated. Very well, said the king. 
Prince Pridio, you have your choice. There is the gallows. Here is Lady Molinda. My duty is painful, but clear. A king's word cannot be broken. Molly or the sword? The prince bowed respectfully to Lady Melinda. Madam, my cousin, your clemency will excuse my answer, and you will not misinterpret the apparent discourtesy of my conduct. I am compelled, most unwillingly, to slight your charms, and to select the extreme rigor of the law. Executioner, lead on. Do your duty. For me, prigio est pret. For this was his motto, and meant that he was ready. Poor Lady Melinda could not but be hurt by the prince's preference for death over marriage to her, little as she liked him. Is life then so worthless? And is Melinda so terrible a person that you prefer those arms? And she pointed to the gallows. To these? Here she held out her own, which, truth be told, were quite well-shaped and pretty by any reasonable standard for judging arms. Besides, Melinda was a good-hearted lady, and she could not bear to see Prigio put to death. And then, perhaps she reflected that there are worse positions than the queenship of Pantuflia. For Alfonso was gone. Crying would not bring him back. Ah, madam, said the prince, you are forgiving. For you are brave, said Melinda, feeling quite a respect for him. But neither your heart nor mine is ours to give. Since mine was another's, I understand too well the feeling of yours. Do not let us buy life at the price of happiness and honor. Then, turning to the king, the prince said, Sir, is there no way but by death or marriage? You say you cannot keep half only of your promise, and that if I accept the reward, I must also unite myself with my unwilling cousin. Cannot the whole proclamation be annulled? And will you consider the bargain void if I tear up this flimsy scroll? And here the prince fluttered the check for one million pounds in the air. For a moment the king was tempted, but then he said to himself, Never mind. It's only an extra penny on the income tax. Then he shouted, Keep your dross, meaning the million, but let me keep my promise, to chapel at once, or... And he pointed to the executioner. The word of a king of Pantuflia is sacred. And so is that of a crown prince, answered Prigio. And mine is pledged to a lady. She shall be a mourning bride, cried the king savagely. Unless... Here he paused for a moment. Unless you bring me back Alfonso and Enrico safe and well. The prince thought for the space of a flash of lightning. I accept the alternative, he said. If your majesty will grant me my conditions. Name them, said the king. Let me be transported to Gluckstein, left there unguarded, and if, in three days, I do not return with my brothers safe and well, your majesty shall be spared a cruel duty. Prigio of Pantuflia will perish by his own hand. The king, whose mind did not work very quickly, took some minutes to think over it. 
Then he saw that by granting the prince's conditions, he could either recover his dear sons or, at least, get rid of Prigio without the unpleasantness of having him executed. For though some kings have put their eldest sons to death, and most have wished to do so, they have never been better loved by the people for their Roman virtue. Honor bright, said the king at last. Honor bright, answered the prince, and for the first time in many months, the royal father and son shook hands. For you, madam, said Prigio in a stately way to Lady Melinda. In less than a week, I trust we shall be taking our vows at the same altar, and that the close of the ceremony which finds us cousins will leave us brother and sister. Poor Melinda merely stared, for she could not imagine what he meant. In a moment he was gone, and having taken by the king's permission the flying carpet, he was back at the ambassador's house in Gluckstein. Chapter 17 The Black Cat and the Brethren Who was glad to see the prince if it was not Lady Rosalind? My lord, again. My lady, <laughs> again. The white roses of her cheeks turned to red roses in a moment, and then back to white again. They were so alarmed at the change. So the two went into the gardens together and talked about a number of things. But at last the prince told her that, before three days were over, all would be well, or all would be over with him. For either he would have brought his brothers back sound and well to Falkenstein, or he would not survive his dishonor. It is no more than right, he said. For if I had gone first, neither of them would have been sent to meet the monster after I had fallen. And I should have fallen, dear Rosalind, if I had faced the fire drake before I knew you. Then when she asked him why and what good she had done him, he told her all the story and how before he fell in love with her, he didn't believe in fairies or fire drakes, or caps of darkness, or anything nice and impossible, but only in horrid, useless facts, and chemistry, and geology, and arithmetic, and mathematics, and even political economy. And the fire drake would have made a mouthful of him then. So she was delighted when she heard this, almost as much delighted as she was afraid that he might fail in this most difficult adventure. For it was one thing to egg on a remora to kill a fire drake, and quite another to find the princes if they were alive, and restore them if they were dead. But the prince said he had his plan, and he stayed that night at the ambassador's. Next morning, he rose very early, before anyone else was up, that he might not have to say goodbye to Lady Rosalind. Then he flew in a moment to the old lonely castle, where nobody went for fear of ghosts, ever since the court retired to Falkenstein. How still it was, how deserted, not a sign of life, and yet the prince was looking everywhere for some living thing. He hunted the castle through in vain, and then went out into the stable yard. But all the dogs, of course, had been taken away, and the farmers had offered homes to the poultry. At last, stretched at full length in a sunny place, the prince found a very old, half-blind, miserable cat. The poor creature was lean, and its fur had fallen off in patches. It could no longer catch birds, nor even mice, and there was nobody to give it milk. But cats do not look far into the future, and this old black cat, Frank was his name, had got a breakfast somehow and was happy in the sun. The prince stood and looked at him pityingly, 
and he thought that even a sick old cat was, in some ways, happier than most men. Well, said the prince at last, he could not live long anyway, and it must be done. He will feel nothing. Then he drew the sword of sharpness, and with one turn of his wrist, cut the cat's head clean off. It did not at once change into a beautiful young lady, as perhaps you expect. No, that was impossible, and as the prince was in love already, would have been vastly inconvenient. The dead cat lay there like any common cat. Then the prince built up a heap of straw with wood on it, and there he laid poor puss and set fire to the pile. Very soon there was nothing of old black Frank left but ashes. Then the prince ran upstairs to the fairy cupboard, his heart beating loudly with excitement. The sun was shining through the arrow-shot window. All the yellow motes were dancing in its rays. The light fell upon strange heaps of fairy things, talismans and spells. The prince hunted about here and there, and at last he discovered six ancient water vessels of black leather, each with a silver plate on it, and on the plate letters engraved. This was what was written on the plates, water from the fountain of lions. Well, it said that in Latin, but as my Latin is worse than my French. Oh, but back to the prince. Thank heaven, said the prince. I thought they were sure to have brought it. Then he took one of the old black leather bottles and ran downstairs again to the place where he had burned the body of the poor old sick cat. He opened the bottle and poured a few drops of water on the ashes and the dying embers. Up there sprang a tall white flame of fire, waving like a tongue of light, and forth from the heap jumped the most beautiful, strong, funny black cat that ever was seen. It was Frank as he had been in the vigor of his youth, and he knew the prince at once and rubbed himself against him and purred. The prince lifted up Frank and kissed his nose for joy, and a bright tear rolled down on Frank's face and made him rub his nose with his paw in the most comical manner. Then the prince set him down, and Frank ran round and round after his tail, and lastly cocked his tail up and marched proudly after the prince into the castle. Oh, Frank, said Prince Prigio, no cat since the time of Puss in Boots was ever so well taken care of as you shall be. For if the fairy water from the Fountain of Lions can bring you back to life, why, there is a chance for Alfonso and Enrico. Then Prigio bustled about, got ready some cold luncheon from the storeroom, took all his fairy things that he was likely to need, sat down with them on the flying carpet, and wished himself at the Mountain of the Fire Drake. I have the king now, for if I can't find the ashes of my brothers, by Jove, I'll... Do you know what he meant to do if he could not find his brothers? Let every one of you children guess. Off he flew, and there he was in a second, just beside poor Alfonso's garden engine. Then Prigio, seeing a little heap of gray ashes beside the engine, watered them with the fairy water, and up jumped Alfonso, as jolly as ever, his sword in his hand. Hello, Prigio, cried he. Are you come after the monster too? I've been asleep, and I had a kind of dream that he beat me, but the pair of us will tackle him. How's Melinda? Prettier than ever, said Prigio, but anxious about you. However, the fire drake's dead and done for, so never mind him. But I left Enrico somewhere about. Just you sit down and wait a minute till I fetch him. The prince said this because he did not wish Alfonso to know that he and Enrico had not quite the best of it in the affair with the monster. All right, old fellow, says Alfonso. But have you any luncheon with you? Never was I so hungry in my life. 
Prince Prigio had thought of this and brought out some cold sausage, to which Alfonso was partial, and some bread, with which the younger prince expressed himself satisfied. Then Prigio went up the hill some way, first warning Alfonso not to sit on his carpet for fear of accidents like that which happened to Benson. In a hollow of the hill, sure enough, was the sword of Enrico. The diamonds of the hilt gleamed in the sun, and there was a little heap of gray ashes. The prince poured a few drops of the water from the fountain of lions on them, and up, of course, jumped Enrico, just as Alfonso had done. Oh, hello, Trigio. Sleepy old chap you are, Enrico, said the prince. But come on, Alfonso will have finished the grub unless we look smart. So back they came in time to get their share of what was going, and they drank the Remora's very good health when Prigio told them about the fight. But neither of them ever knew that they had been dead and done for, because Prigio invented a story that the mountain was enchanted, and that as long as the fire drake lived, everyone who came there fell asleep. He did tell them about the flying carpet, however, which of course did not much surprise them because they had read all about it in the Arabian Nights and other historical works. And now, ho oh, ho, I'll show you fun, said Prigio, and he asked them both to take their seats on the carpet and wished to be in the Valley of the Remora. There they were in a moment, among the old knights whom, if you remember, the Remora had frozen into stone. There was quite a troop of them in all sorts of armor, Greek and Roman, and Knight Templars like Front de Boeuf and Brian de Bois-Gilbert, all the brave warriors that had tried to fight the Remora since the world began. Then Prigio gave each of his brothers some of the water in their caps and told them to go round pouring a drop or two on each frozen knight. And as they did it, lo and behold, each knight came alive with his horse and lifted his sword and shouts in so many languages, but all of which the prince perfectly understood and spoke like a native. So he marshaled them in order and sent them off to ride to Falkenstein and cry, off they rode to Falkenstein. And when the king saw them come galloping in, I can tell you that he had no more notion of hanging Prigio. Chapter 18, The Very Last. The princes returned to Gluckstein on the carpet and went to the best inn where they dined together and slept. Next morning, they and the ambassador, who had been told all the story, and Lady Rosalind, floated comfortably on the carpet back to Falkenstein, where the king wept like anything on the shoulders of Alfonso and Enrico. They could not make out why he cried so, nor why Lady Melinda and Lady Kathleen cried. But soon they were all laughing and happy again. But then, would you believe he could be so mean? He refused to keep his royal promise and restore Prigio to his crown princeship. Kings are like that. But Prigio, very quietly, asking for the head of the fire drake, said he'd pour the magic water on that and bring the fire drake back to life again, unless his majesty behaved rightly. This threat properly frightened King Grognio, and he apologized. Then the king shook hands with Prigio in public and thanked him, and said he was proud of him. Your majesty. Well now, 
as to Lady Rosalind, the old gentleman quite fell in love with her, and he sent at once to the chaplain royal to get into his surplice and marry all these young people off at once, without waiting for the wedding cakes and milliners and all the rest of it. Now, just as they were forming a procession to march into church, who should appear but the queen? Her Majesty had been traveling by post all the time, and luckily had heard of none of the doings since Prigio Benson and the King left Gluckstein. I say luckily, because if she had heard of them, she would not have believed a word of them. But when she saw Alfonso and Enrico, she was much pleased and said, Naughty boys, where have you been hiding? The King had some absurd story about your having been killed by a fabulous monster. Bah, don't tell me. I always said you would come back after a little trip, didn't I, Prigio? Certainly, madam, said Prigio. And I said so, too. Didn't I say so? And all the courtiers cried, Yes, you did. But some added to themselves, He always says, Didn't I say so? Don't I know it? Then the queen was introduced to Lady Rosalind, and she said it was, Rather a short engagement. But she supposed young people understood their affairs best. And they do. So the three pairs were married with the utmost rejoicing, and Her Majesty never her whole life long could be got to believe that anything unusual had occurred. The honeymoon of Prince Prigio and the Crown Princess Rosalind was passed at the castle where the prince had been deserted by the court. But now it was delightfully fitted up, and Master Frank marched about the house with his tail in the air as if the place belonged to him. Now, on the second day of their honeymoon, the prince and princess were sitting in the garden together, and the prince said, Are you quite happy, my dear? And Rosalind said, Yes, quite. But the prince could hear a certain something in the tone of her voice, and he said, No. No, there's something. Do tell me what it is. Well, said Rosalind, putting her head on his shoulder and speaking very low. I want everybody to love you as much as I do. No, not quite so very much. But I want them to like you. Now they can't because they are afraid of you, for you are so awfully clever. Now, couldn't you take the wishing cap and wish to be no cleverer than other people? Then everybody would like you. The prince thought a minute. Then he said, Your will is law, my dear. Anything to please you. Just wait a minute. Then he ran upstairs for the last time to the fairy garret, and he put on the wishing cap. No, thought he to himself. I won't wish that. Every man has one secret from his wife. This shall be mine. Then he said aloud, I wish to seem no cleverer than other people. Then he ran downstairs again, and the princess noticed a great difference in him, though, of course, there was really none at all. And so did everyone, for the prince remained as clever as ever he had been, but as nobody observed it, he became the most popular prince and finally the best beloved king who had ever sat on the throne of Pantuflia. But occasionally, Rosalind would say, I do believe, my dear, that you are really as clever as ever. And he was. The end.
You've been listening to Through the Looking Glass from Jabberwocky Audio Theatre. Today's presentation, Prince Prigio, Part 6 of 6. The story was written by Andrew Lang and lightly adapted for radio by Bjorn Munson. Produced by Jabberwocky Audio Theatre in association with Arlington Independent Media, WERALP, 96.7 FM, Arlington, Virginia. Featured in the cast were Bjorn Munson as the narrator and Frank the Cat, Nick DePinto as Prince Prigio, Kevin Murray as King Grognio, Amy Tebear as Lady Melinda, Tara Garwood as Lady Rosalind, Mike Bernal as Prince Alfonso, Francis Abbey as Prince Enrico, Elizabeth Farrington as Lady Kathleen, and Mary Lecter as the Queen, with additional voices by Francis Abbey, Mike Bernal, William R. Kaufman, Kim Davenport, Elizabeth Farrington, Tara Garwood, Kevin Murray, Bjorn Munson, Joel Snyder, and Brooks Tegler. Recorded at Tolgi Wood Studios in Deepest Springfield, with supplemental recording in many other places. See our show notes on jabberaudio.com for details. There, you'll also find our latest episodes and enough information to satisfy a prince. The only thing I'm not satisfied with is that I can't keep doing this. All good things, sweet prince. Dialogue editing by Maurice Mulder, with final sound mix and mastering by William R. Coughlin. Post-production services provided by Tohu Bohu Productions, LLC. This recording is the property of Team Jabberwocky, LLC, and may not be rebroadcast, retransmitted, or redistributed without express permission from Team J. If you're enjoying Prince Prigio and the other yarns we spin at Jabberwocky Audio Theater, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast provider of choice. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash teamjabberwocky for exclusive content and to help us continue to bring you further tales of silliness, suspense, and high adventure. Until next time, this is Kim Davenport saying thanks for listening and tune in next week for, well, you really haven't told me. Uh, we're uh, still figuring it out. So tune in next week for another tale of adventure and suspense and maybe some silliness. Ooh, that's good. Hast thou slain the Jabberwock? Walk?